1: What would you do if you came face to face with your
2: former self wow
0: um oh man where
2: did you find this you'd stop and
1: you'd listen the highs and lows fear and faith
0: it's amazing
1: the moments that change a course of a life That was the most uplifting moment of my career we call them interventions
0: Welcome to Interventions. I'm Kim Taylor Bennett, and I'm a music journalist and producer. Right now I'm in LA, but generally I'm in New York.
3: I'm Matt Everett. I too am a music journalist and producer, and uh, I'm in London. I'm not in New York, and I'm not in California. More is the pity, to be honest.
0: This is a new podcast where I guess if I was trying to explain it to someone, I'd say we're going to confront musicians with the most important moments in their lives. So take them back to when they wrote that song, met that person. Played that gig, and see how they feel about that time now, from the start of their career all the way to the present day. We'll be meeting people on both sides of the Atlantic, with me in the US and Matt in the UK.
3: What did you think when when we asked you to do this? What was your what, were your initial, what was your initial reaction?
0: I was psyched to be asked to do this because basically the whole reason I got into music journalism apart from loving music was because I'm a nosy bitch. So, like, I just <laughs> want to ask all the personal questions. Like, who are you writing about here? Like, what deep, dark depression were you in there? What does this lyric mean? You know, like, what childhood trauma did you have that made you become <laughs> this massive a-hole? You know, like, I just really like asking the different difficult questions and especially like asking them to people whose art I admire. So that's, so this is just the dream come true. Basically I'm like interventions. Yes. Key points in an artist's life where, you know, it was a turning point or they were in a dark hell hole and they clawed their way up. Everybody loves a Phoenix rising story.
3: Yeah. Everybody loves to comeback. I think this is also by, by making these, interventions, as we're kind of calling them, physical things, making them, here's an object or here's a direct quote, or here's a photo, or here's a recorded message we've got from somebody in your past. And Mm. without warning them about it, which doesn't normally happen in big major interviews, you don't get a chance to surprise big names normally. Yeah. Because a lot of big name artist interviews, it can get a bit generic, can't it?
0: They're just so, I mean, they've just done it so many times before. And it's obviously our job to kind of to elicit a, a different reaction or a different response. Um, so it's exciting to be able to be like, here is this, look at this. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this is as you saw, This is the other thing as well. With these stars, these kind of big no people we're going to be speaking to, their lives are very well documented. Yeah. So some quote that they made at the start of their career when they're talking about, oh yeah, every other band is worth nothing. We're the only band that matters. You know, We can take that quote and go, yes, now six albums in you know how do you feel about being that precocious young woman or that or that bold young man and kind of see how they feel about themselves now totally. in a kind of different context
0: yeah I, re- I interviewed the Killers not that long ago and Brandon was having a real kind of like he wrote that song The Man about how he how he was as a like Swaggering 23 year olds taking on the world. And he was like a bit, he was a bit embarrassed about like how much braggadocio he had. But I was like, dude, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. You're, you gotta be a rock and roll star. You gotta be sort of ridiculous so that you can create this myth. And, you know, you may be in your late 30s now, but you needed to be doing that when you were 23 for us to believe in you.
3: Yeah. This is the thing I think like there's, it's almost like there's no mistakes because even the things that may seem ridiculous or overblown. Or even the things that are like really hard, you know, and a lot of musicians do kind of have crises and crises of faith or personal and emotional crises. They all still make up the person that you are. Often it goes directly into the work. So it's kind of like all these things, no matter how awful that haircut might be in that photo, or having to think about that moment when, you know, you sold all your possessions for whatever That all makes you who you are. So, yeah, I guess it's probably going to be quite awful for some people. But hopefully, I mean, you know, more interesting than a, like, where did you get your band name from interview.
0: Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Don't ask that question.
3: And our first guest on Interventions is, from Snow Patrol, It's
0: Gary Lightbody.
3: If I lay here If I just lay heard of snow patrol you probably know them for massive colossal big indie stadium hits like run and chasing cars and but they you know they've actually been going for a very very long time there's a band that's got a really interesting history to reach this point of being like these global stars that have just released their seventh album wildness
0: yeah that was wild when i was thinking about snow patrol and researching them i was like oh my God, they started in 93. I had, no, you know, and they it, they broke really 10 years later. It's it's an extraordinarily long amount of time to like hold on to that dream and to keep grafting and being broke and putting out records and like not getting played on the radio. So, I mean, kudos to them.
3: We talk a bit, as you'll hear, like about when it did hit, I mean, on X Factor 2008, Leona Lewis sung their song Run and like it just, became this colossal hit and, you know, they had Chasing Cars, which was used on Grey's Anatomy. And they kind of went from being this this very introspective, very sort of raw emotional band to being like these huge anthems that people just lost their minds for. Once again, that doesn't normally happen. Th- those kind of bands don't normally cross over in that way. You know, yeah. it's quite impressive. It really is.
0: It is impressive. And it's also, the 2000s were an interesting time where it was, you know, For indie rock bands, they were crossing over into the charts, and it's like not so much the case these days. That indie rock felt like the mainstream, and obviously, Leona Lewis helped (laughs) get them right up the charts. But it it doesn't feel like bands do that nowadays so much.
3: Yeah, because they've got new the new albums come out. It's called Wildness. Last one before that was 2011, so that's a pretty big gap. And one of the things I wanted to talk to Gary about was like what happened in that in that space of time, and he talks about having severe writer's block and about how, you know, his more overindulgent tendencies really derailed him, his songwriting, and really derailed the band as well.
0: Yeah, I kind of, they dropped off and I just sort of thought that was it. So it was, I mean, love a comeback story. I was like, oh, it was kind of awesome. They're back.
3: Let's do Gary. Welcome to Interventions, Gary Lightbody.
2: Hi, Matt. How's it going? <laughs>
3: it's going very well. Excellent. Do you do, you, do, you, do you do any preparation before, if someone says, oh, you're going to do a podcast interview, do you, do you...
2: Not when it's people I know, like right. yourself. I figure that we're going to have a conversation and it's going to be fun and I trust you. So, okay. you know, like, uh, I know you're not going to, like... Uh, try? It's probably going to be okay. Well, yeah,
3: this is... I mean, interventions are normally when you, you present someone with... with Maybe the terrible things they've done throughout their life and you sit mm. down and, and I'm
2: okay with that as well.
3: And you go back <laughs> over that. But in this case we're gonna be looking at a kind of key important moments and people and quotes and photographs and music that kind of have made up your life and career to this point.
2: Does okay. That sound alright? Sounds good, let's do it.
3: First thing we're gonna look at, early press review.
2: Oh, farts
3: it's a podcast you can say oh fuck if you want oh fuck then
2: <laughs> i'll recant my first farts and, and and i'll raise you a fuck do you remember reading your the very first review that, that you got i'm not sure i've definitely read i used to read reviews back in the early days as, as as every everybody and that's ever been in a band does in the early days and then there is a point where you just stop um and i'm you know long past the last time i read a review but uh um, but yeah, I remember reading some early ones. I'm not sure what the one that you're about to show me, but I did read some.
3: This is uh, from the Times. This is 2017. <laughs> this is the Times, so this is... Okay. Uh, the, Mar- Times, the, the Times? The London Times? The, the Times, Times of London? The actual Times. <laughs> right. March 2001. Okay. Uh, Snow Patrol, one night is not enough. What promises to be more intolerable fae whining from Bella and Sebastian's label mates? Turns out... To be a pleasingly steely tale of heartbreak and masochism, reminiscent of Leonard Cohen's First We Take Manhattan. That's good. Wow. Still, you can almost see their sad and lonely bedsit, complete with congealed <laughs> washing up in the sink. Oh, what I like oh to- <laughs> how they knew me. <laughs> well, the thing I like about this is now we're looking back on this as a new record's coming out and you've had a certain amount of success. So there was a little bit of, ha, mm. everything turned out okay. Do you remember that one?
2: No, don't remember that one. Back when people wrote single reviews.
3: How much did you care early on about that kind of stuff?
2: Oh, I cared. I cared a lot. It broke my heart when we got a bad review. So my heart was broken pretty much constantly. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Are there any that, that, that particularly, that still haunt you to this day?
2: No, but the, the, fu- the funniest one we ever got was in the NME. It wasn't a review as such. It was the end of year review. And it was talking about the, the flooding as there always is in a year in, in, in Britain, like referring to the flooding. And it said, our, we had to cancel a part, uh, part of our tour. And it said, flood levels rose as a nation wept.
1: <laughs> I thought that was the best oh.
2: like, I thought, I mean, obviously it <laughs> sticks a bit, but at the same time, it is absolutely hilarious. And when, you, when it's funny, you go, fair play. Yeah. You can't say anything about that. It's when it's personal, that's when, that's when, it, that's when it stings. And that's why eventually you realise there's no don't. point in reading any of it.
3: <laughs> but did, you, did you have a bed sit complete with congealed washing up in the sink? Yeah, I wouldn't have used the word congealed, but yes. Paint, paint me a picture of that if I was to visit your bed sit in, in 2000.
2: Well, it's funny, 2001, was the, that was the year that our second album came out and we got dropped from Jeepster actually as, as well. And, uh, and it was also the year that I wrote Run. Um, mixed bag A Mixed bag um, <laughs> but Ron obviously didn't come out until 2003 when we released Final Straw for the first time and I, I say the first time because we re-released it in January 2004 but um, and that's when it took off but 2001 it was um, a flat with um, Nathan Connolly our guitar player and uh, Jimmy Symington, an old school friend um, and his girlfriend uh, so it was the four of us, and it was mayhem um it was we had a lot of parties, and the place was just just a like a chaos pit pit um and uh yeah, there was a lot of i wasn't very tidy uh, that's that's to say the least, I was an extremely messy person at the time i'm really not anymore um, really that shifted it shifted yeah i became kind of i'm not sure if it shifted It might have shifted too far shifted. i'm a little ocd now but um i was at the time i was yeah i was slovenly to say the least and in it was in that environment that i wrote run and i hate to demystify a song here that probably means um something to some people but uh, um light up light up obviously is the chorus uh, the electricity had just gone off <laughs> 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 so i'm not hundred percent sure whether it was uh, whether I was um, uh, referring to that or not, but uh, it was um, it was definitely it was definitely present in my mind at the time It was those electricity cards when you oh, would the keys. always oh. yeah you, you'd, you'd get you'd always be in the minus numbers mm-hmm. and it would always yeah. be going double speed you 'd always be overdraft You're, yeah your brain like you never got. With the fact that if you just kept it above that line, it would cost you less. No, no, no. You would always be in the emergency emergency fund.
3: That's that's the little bit of the rebel in in you, isn't it? When you're in limited s- circumstances, mm. you can't really stick it to the man, but you can stick it ru- to yourself. You can see you still <laughs> run the overdraft on the lecky key. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Interventions with Snow Patrol's Gary Lightbody.
3: Okay, let's do a photograph because obviously this is a podcast, describe this beautiful photo that I've just handed you. Intervention number two, I guess. Oh, my good God. Oh, you look good?
2: That shirt does not, though. But um, that's a difficult... An interesting choice for uh, a shirt. Um, 2001, something like that? 2000, I think, but yeah. So that's me... On the right, and that's Mark McClelland in the middle, and that's Johnny Quinn looking very handsome at the back. I'm not sure why the most handsome person in the band is at the back <laughs> out of focus, but here we are. Was and that also, person, like- also, the shot is taken by Bradley Quinn, which is Johnny's brother, so I'm not sure if he's paying him back for you know, <laughs> all the Chinese burns and wedgies over the years, but here we are.
3: Oh, would you call it a prison haircut?
2: Yeah. I used to shave my head pretty, pretty close to the skin back in those days. I'd grow it really long, and then I'd dye it. Uh, I'd bleach it. And then I dyed different colors. And then when I caught myself in the mirror, <laughs> I would go, oh, "I'm going to shave that off." And so that was the pattern. I would repeat that pattern until ad nauseum, really.
3: How do you feel looking at that picture? Because I mean, you look yeah. I mean, you it's not like you look old now. Let's be uh, honest. Thank
2: you. But uh, yeah, I do look a li- I do look a little younger. It's not a bad picture. I'll give you that. You could have picked a lot worse. Yeah. And I appreciate. I'm sure you found a lot worse than i <laughs> Yes. not a good uh, and uh, so uh, I'm very um, I'm very grateful that you picked that one is
3: there did you is there a point where you? because you see, it with some bands it tends to be like, like the sort of stadium rockers they work out what their face is and that's the face they do in like nearly all their press photos I don't think you've quite worked out your face sir. no
2: no I haven't got a I haven't really got a face it's sort of shop display mode really isn't it <laughs> it's like it's yeah I'm, I'm still figuring that out yeah <laughs>
3: Put the headphones on for intervention number
1: three. So I first met him in September 1990, uh, and he was in uh, my fourth <laughs> form English class. And he was just this? a very likable, very quite laid back, quite happy go lucky chap. Clearly, very bright, but like many boys, uh, you know, happy to sort of go along with an economy of effort. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't putting all of his hard work in the school. As an English teacher, (laughs) I'm proud to tell you that I introduced him to, you know, like Seamus Heaney would be the main one, I suppose. Uh, uh, Probably James Joyce. As his English teacher, I probably shouldn't have been teaching him about Van Morrison and and Bob Dylan, but I think they probably had a big (laughs) influence. It was quite clear that there was something that had just clicked into place.
3: And who was
2: that? That was Mr. Mark McKee from Campbell College, Belfast. Um, I was there between eighty nine and ninety four and he was my English teacher for my last two or three years there extraordinary man
3: tell me a bit about the kind of impact he had on you
2: so i mean he you know he describes it beautifully there um but he was one of those teachers. It was very much like oh captain my captain you know he was, <laughs> he, was he was he was that teacher, the teacher that called called- called you to arms, you know and uh and myself and Davey Matchett, who actually I we run, uh, we were part of the team that set up the OYA Music Centre in Belfast. And we also run a, co- a company back home, an artist development company called Third Bar. Together, we were in his English class together. So his impact went right. You know, it wasn't just me. It was there was a lot of people that ended up doing things from that class in in, in the arts and gave their lives to making, you know, trying to make art or trying to help people make art. Um, so he had a massive impact. And he, he was just an extraordinary, extraordinary man. Just his classes were always really fun. I always looked forward to them. Um, he introduced me to Seamus Heaney, as he said there. And Seamus Heaney became uh, very quickly a, a hero and still is of mine. And he was the reason why I started writing in the first place. I started writing poetry. I was a published poet, age 15, Terrible, terrible poetry, but
3: really terrible
2: pretty bad, yeah, pretty bad, mostly about the troubles in Northern Ireland, you know i didn 't really know how to process it. I wasn't on one side or the other i I felt very isolated and uh, you know outside of what was going on in Northern Ireland. I just wanted everybody to get along, um, so I was a very sensitive kind of kid, and uh, so I wrote a lot about that, and um
3: what kind of a student were you, you I was think? a terrible
2: student. Terrible student all the way through university. I, I ended up getting a degree, but I was never, I was never as engaged in school or um, studies as I was in music.
3: We have a question from him.
1: Uh, uh, yes, ask him what he's reading at the moment and if he would recommend it. That would be a good question. He, uh, I, I, I struggled. He, no guy invites me to concerts all the time, uh, and it's very kind of him. You know, every time he's at home, he, he he texts me and says, Would you like to come along? I what do you what do you buy a man who has everything? So uh, the only thing I'm proud of I, I once found him a copy of a, a poetry anthology which had, had actually gone out of print, uh, because I thought it was something that he would really enjoy. So ask him if he's reading poetry or if he's reading a novel, and if he would recommend
3: it, that would be that's my question for
2: him. What are you? I am just finished reading, and it came out a couple of years ago, and I missed it. Um, A friend of mine bought it for me. Um, Grief is the thing with feathers. Uh, It just blew me away. It's uh, an extraordinary book uh, about loss, about bereavement, about the family coping with the loss of a of a mother. It's actually kind of moving to even talk about it it's a beautiful book lines that just have universes in them you know it's beautiful is there a book in you maybe i've tried to sit down and write one many times i just don't i think writing songs even though geez it takes me years sometimes these day um, these days as uh, the last seven years has tested to i think that writing songs has removed that longevity of sitting down and writing you know, cause I'm so used to like being done <laughs> and it, with a book, you're never done. I have a friend who, who's a novelist and uh, he just got his first book published it Took six months of intensive writing, sc- secluding himself from the, from the world. He uh, tells a great story of going, he went to the Irish iron islands. Um, there's a Scottish iron islands and an Irish iron islands. And, uh, he went there and there's only a post office and a pub and a store and that's it. And there's, you know, a handful of people live there. And uh, in the pub, he would go in and he would order tea with no milk. And on the island, he became known as, oh, hello, there's no milk. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most beautiful thing I think I've ever heard. You're just known as, <laughs> it's your, your peccadillo. Is your, that's the
3: thing. Is your, <laughs> that's the one thing about you. Yeah.
2: It's, it's, it's beautiful. Light up, light up as if you have a choice.
3: Even if you cannot hear
2: my voice, I'll be right beside you, dear.
3: When you just hear that, how do you feel? There it is, that's that's the point. It changed. That is when it changed. That um, that piece of music does it? Does it still?
2: Yeah. Does it still matter? Yeah, pe- people talk about people talk about chasing cars, which um, which you know obviously was went on to be our biggest song and uh, um, and is extremely important and we love it to bits. But that that for me, run is, will always be the most mm-hmm. important song we ever did.
3: Well, was there the moment when you, there must be an amazing feeling just that moment of like this is it, here it is, it's happening. We can all sense that this thing that we've been talking about, that we believe is possible, this is it, it's happening right now.
2: Yeah, the, it's funny because it, it it, there was that moment. We'd released Final Straw in 2003 to some acclaim. Actually, it was probably our best-reviewed record. Um, and, uh, and then the same amount of sales as the first two albums, really, which was about 15,000 copies. And, uh, and then uh, Joe Wiley played run all six minutes of the album version on daytime radio one in December. And we went from playing a gig in gig in high Wickham, the white horse in high Wickham to, um, 15 people, seven of which were in the support band. And, um, (laughs) that was December, 2003 and then Joe Wiley played Run on Radio 1 Daytime, uh, the album version. And, you know, as legend goes, you know, the phone lines melted and everybody wanted to hear it. And so we re-released it, an edited version of it, um, in January 2004. And we re-released the album. And it, it the album went in number three, um, which was, you know, we'd never even gone in the top 100. Um, yeah. And, uh, and the single... Well, this is, this is to answer your question, The the we were listening to the charts in Radio 1, and you know, the countdown, and uh, we, a friend of mine, Simon Cull, who, thank you so much Simon, for all those years of letting me sleep on your couch, um, I basically uh, slept on friends' couches in those days, um, and uh, well, he had a party for about 30 or 40 people, and we listened to the countdown, and Every time we weren't on it, people cheered. You know, like and next up, whoever it was, it's not us. Yay! It means we're <laughs> higher up. And um, and then number five, new entry this week: Snow Patrol with Run. And you know, the place went mental, and we drunk our wouldn't have been champagne. We wouldn't be able to afford that cider, probably. And uh, and that that was the moment that was like, oh, things are, things are changing. I mean, it was not the moment, probably that. Everything had changed immeasurably and was everything was going to be all right from then on. But it was the moment that we went, oh, this is this is the first time this door is opened. We can see inside the the gilded room.
3: You know, it's amazing you chose a Leon Lewis cover. Yeah,
2: it's it's funny. We did. uh, We did. (laughs) um, We did sport. uh, I did sport relief with Johnny McDade. It was the first thing back. That we had done live live TV. We did it. I I I didn't sing it very well. I was kind of disappointed with my performance because uh, I was so nervous because we hadn't done a sh- live show in seven years, a live TV show in seven years. But afterwards, there was so much to, um to like people were showing me like on their Twitter. I, I I don't there be dragons. I don't go there after a performance. But people were going. Everyone's talking about Leona Lewis. <laughs> <I'm> like <laughs> so, everyone has said, "What are Snow Patrol doing a Leona Lewis cover for?"
3: Really? <laughs> yes, genuinely.
2: Yeah, and you know Leona Lewis was uh, had our own <laughs> one and only number one hit. <laughs> so I have to be very grateful for that because we'd never had we had never had a number one uh, single, and uh, but she got the number one. So.
3: Thank you, Leona. Thank you
2: very much, Leona, indeed.
1: Interventions with Snow Patrol's Gary Lightbody. If we're talking about
3: being back, I mean, it's, there is no denying 2011 to 2018, that is a gap. Yes. That is a certain amount of time. Was there a point in that when it was like, I'm, I, I don't think there is going to be another record? I don't think I do want to or can. Yeah. do this
2: yeah yeah many times really yeah yeah yeah
3: there
2: was a lot of times I thought I'm never going to be able to write another song for Snow Patrol I just don't I don't know how I was writing songs for TV for movies for other people for no problem and every time I sat down to write a song for Snow Patrol it just just seemed to hurt what do you mean I didn't understand how to write from I I didn't I wasn't connected to myself (laughs) anymore Um, I was drinking way too much. I was very depressed. I was very... um, kind of just disjointed, I guess. Um, It took a long time to figure out that I needed to pack all that in um, before I I could get any kind of clarity. But I didn't realize even that at the time, um, that that was going to bring... And new Snow Patrol record with it. Um, I was just doing it because I was, I was, I was in a dark place. How and,
3: difficult was it to stop? Because I think for bands, you know, if it's booze, you're used to have a couple of pints before, check, do check, have a couple of drinks afterwards, do a gig, drink, whatever. That's, that's, that's what happens when you yeah. start from the age of 18 or whatever. Yeah. That's no, your daily routine.
2: Yeah. My, my, is- mine was worse off tour because I didn't drink that much on tour because my voice would take a beating um i realized after but 2007 i lost my voice in houston texas sounds like the start of a country song but uh, <laughs> uh i um i i went to see a vocal coach for the first time band had been a galley for 15 years at that time or something but um i wanted to see a vocal coach and uh, uh it always seemed like um cheating to me or something yeah <laughs> um and uh And they, well, first of all, I had polyps, which, um, which I had to take a month off rest and stuff. And then I went to see a vocal coach and they gave me some warm ups and basically told me that, you know, what's your routine before a gig? And I was like, well, you know, involves beer and, um, sometimes vodka or whatever. But, um, they were like, yeah, well, you know, that's, that's your problem right there. So I would not drink before shows or even after shows, unless I had a day off the next day. Right. So it wouldn't be a lot of drinking on tour for me after that point. But when I went off tour, that's when I would drink. I'd make up for all the, the drinking that I'd missed out on. FOMO. Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, um, so I basically, um, so then the, uh, the fact the album took so long, it was kind of like the, um, it was a self fulfilling prophecy in a way I was drinking too much and the album was so the album was being delayed and because the album was being delayed I was drinking more and it just became this sort of self-perpetuating kind of thing or a snake eating its own tail or whatever but I um once I quit two years ago I um I started to come out of the fog of that and uh, it, everything became very clear
3: and how did that feel finishing the first song that you were like that not for a film That's not for an ad, that's not for someone else. It was Don't Give In.
2: Yeah. And it was
3: uh,
2: celebratory, to say the least. I'm not sure I'd ever felt quite like it before, because I'd never been that present (laughs) when something was finished. To actually know that something was finished, know that something was ready, not... um, uh, and then not go out celebrated by getting hammered and uh, <laughs> waking up the next day and feeling rotten so it was, a, it was a very different experience from then on in where you actually were very tuned in to everything that was happening
3: This is it. There's the record. There's wildness in your in your hands. Looking at that yes. physical object.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's 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 been the biggest labour of love I've ever embarked on. Yeah. Never <coughs> been more proud of anything.
3: Thank you very much. It's been a really good to speak to me.
2: Thanks, Matt.
3: Now you've heard the the interview what do you think about him what do you think about the chat
0: I mean I thought he was so charming you know very self-deprecating has a great sense of humour and you know the end of it you guys he got emotional and I was really I was really pretty touched by that like he's obviously been through the ringer and come out the other side and he has finally produced a record and he's just like shit I did it (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah I think yeah, there was There was. it's interesting because you know he he's really funny as you say he's self-deprecating and you've got to wonder how much of that is you know that's it, it's true it's not a false thing but it is it's there alongside this kind of you know obviously it's like seven years of not doing a record not being able to write it's pretty it's pretty difficult for anyone I was surprised by how emotional he got I was kind of stunned by that and quite how honest he was about about the drinking, you know?
0: You know what? It's it's a really wonderful thing f- to make art that touches people. And it's a wonderful thing to put your heart and soul into that art. And I think it's that exchange of emotion is really what makes the world go round. How do, have you... You know, from the first time that you interviewed him to now, did, did, you, did you notice a difference or was he just pretty much the same kind of kind of dude?
3: He seems pretty much the same. I think, I, I know that w- when they first got very, very famous, I think there was, there was definitely an intent to try and stay normal. I think there was like, you know, s- some bands do that. Some bands have this thing. It's like, okay, we will, as we've been, you know, we haven't been successful for so many years. Now we are. We're going to try and hang on to the things that stop us from... Turning into ego maniacal idiots, mm. and I think there was that you know keep the humor, try to keep your feet on the ground, don't turn up with eighteen people in your entourage, yeah, and I think there was there was a conscious effort to do that, which I think has served him well, but you know it's some it's, um, it's there's no roadmap for that kind of stuff when you get that big, you know the only people that can tell you what it's like are people that have been there before, and even in their case every every band, every artist, every director, every film star, it's different for everybody. And I don't think necessarily it's it's suited to people, even people that that go hunting for it. That's fair.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think with artists who have incredible ambitions and they're chasing something, and then often when they get there, they're they're so isolated that it they're just like, okay, now I'm here and I have the mansion and I have the success, and and I'm sort of not fulfilled, and. Then, and then you're really just like alone with yourself. And I think that can be hard. That can be really That'd
3: hard. That'd be great as well at the same time. I'd love the mansion. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to have some quiet time just on myself with my 80 foot guitar shaped marble swimming pool. That's fine. I could deal with the loneliness. It doesn't bother me.
0: It's not true. <laughs> Everybody needs a cuddle, Matt.
3: Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> we should really say thank you to Gary. Um, and Obviously, as we talked about, the new Snow Patrol album, Wellness is out now and you can hear it, all the stuff we've been talking about. You can hear all, all the music that he's kind of done, that Gary's created and written after this slow, difficult birth. It's on all streaming services as we speak. And in fact, we oh, can hear all of Snow Patrol's considerable back catalogue and past albums right up there as well.
0: So thank you, Gary, for being so candid and and lovely. Um, If you want to find out more about the band, you could go to snowpatrol.com or at snowpatrol on Instagram to uh, just be very voyeuristic and Twitter (laughs) should do the trick also you can chat with them there
3: that's it that was the first episode of Interventions with Gary Lightbody from Snow Patrol
0: we're going to be doing more of these we're going to be going deep I'm really excited about this series and if you haven't subscribed already then please do I'm Kim Taylor Bennett
3: and I'm Matt Everett thank you very much for listening this has been a Cup and Nozzle production in partnership with Globe Productions